Schools were closed across the country and parents increasingly voted with their feet and decided to leave the school system. It's estimated 1.5 million students left the public school system during the pandemic. Over hundreds of thousands of them signed up for charter schools. Catholic schools increased their enrollment. Micro schools and learning pods, which were an incredibly niche sector before this, had hundreds of thousands of people who enrolled in them, hundreds and thousands of teachers who started new schools. And so what you're seeing already is that parents are opting in for customized education solutions. And really, there is policy now enabling parents to actually take their state funds and follow them to whatever education they want. Happy Tuesday and welcome to Not Boring Founders, the podcast where we talk to the people building the future. This is an episode that I guess has been about 23 years in the making. I've known Odyssey founder Joe Connor for 23 years, since we were 12 years old, went to school near each other, went to the same church, went to the same beach town, and then ended up going to college together at Duke. We stayed in touch after college as he made his way through the world of education and law in a bunch of different ways that you'll hear about in this podcast episode. And when he told me that he was starting a company, of course, I had to invest. Joe is one of the most thoughtful people that I know, but he also has just absolutely perfect founder market fit for the problem that he's going after, which combines his background in education, his background in law, and just his goodness. We invested in what was then called Agora, now Odyssey, in the pre-seed round. And when Joe told me that Catherine Boyle at A16Z, who runs the American Dynamism Fund, was interested in leading the seed, I was so excited. Catherine's amazing, and, and she kind of has an investor market fit for the problem that Joe's solving. As I've written about before, and particularly now that I have two kids, education is just this recurring incredibly important topic to me and one that just is upstream of almost anything else. If you look 20, 30 years out into the future, our ability to innovate and solve really, really hard problems, I can't even imagine what those problems are going to look like in 20 to 30 years. But our ability to solve those problems comes from our ability right now to educate our kids well in this fast changing world. And what Odyssey is doing is giving parents a choice for how to educate their kids. So we'll get into everything that Odyssey's doing, the why behind it and why it's so important in a second. But before we do, a word from our brand new, not boring founder sponsor, ladies and gentlemen, meet Hyper. Hyper is a radically different kind of startup accelerator backed by Anderson Horowitz and Sequoia Capital. I remember talking to Josh Buckley, one of the founders of Hyper a few years ago when he was starting it and thinking that it just made so much sense. It combines the network that the founders of Hyper and the funds that back them have with a big media presence. The model's only gotten better since then. Now they pair you with unicorn founders for four weeks who become your mentors and help you rethink growth and product. These hosts, all people who've recently scaled past $1 billion valuations, listen to your problems and help you solve them. They'll help uncover the angles you haven't thought of yet and help you work through your biggest blockers. Last week, they announced that Ahmad Akand the co-founder and CEO of Mercury, as their first unicorn founder host. He scaled it to $1.6 billion in just five years, and more than 100,000 startups use the platform. You want to come work with Ahmad and other unicorn founders? Apply to Hyper and follow Hyper underscore on Twitter 
to find out which other unicorn founders will be participating in Hyper's upcoming program. Hyper is also Product Hunt's sister company, and all of their unicorn founder hosts launched on Product Hunt. Not Boring's first big break was when we scaled from like 1,200 to almost 3,000 subscribers by launching on Product Hunt. It can have a huge impact on your business, and there's no better group of people on the planet to be connected with when it's launch day. Hyper applications are open from October 26th to January 6th, and you can apply at hyper.com. Tell them that Not Boring sent you. Again, that's hyper.com. Now let's get to it. Joe, welcome to Not Boring Founders. Thanks, Packy, for having me. Excited to be here. This is an episode, what, 20-something years in the making. I think we were 12, went to college together, same fraternity. You're my little brother in the fraternity. <laughs> it's very nice when all of that works out and then you build a company that gets backed by A16Z's American Dynamism Practice and Catherine Boyle and is doing something really, really important. So thank you for making that whole thing lovely and easy to root for you and, and want to back you. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to talk about what we're working on. So let's let's start there. What are you working on? And then what does the world look like in a decade if you're wildly successful? So at Odyssey, we enable states to directly fund parents for K to 12 education. And this is a complete sea change in how traditionally in America we funded education, which is there's kind of three streams of funding local, state, and federal that get combined and then are sent to your local school district. Increasingly, though, the problem that we have in the U.S. is twofold. One, school districts are not doing a great job preparing kids. There was a recent test that just came out. It's called the NAEP, also referred to as the Nation's Report Card. And it showed for the first time in 30 years that test scores are going down, not up. And even prior to the pandemic, we weren't necessarily hitting it out of the ballpark in terms of proficiency rates. So it's even more alarming that they're now actually declining when they weren't actually in a great place before. So proficiency levels are down in fourth grade math and reading, eighth grade math and reading. I was just looking into some of the data this morning. Detroit has some of the worst possible statistics. I think it's 3% of fourth graders in math are on grade level there, which means that the average fourth grader in Detroit can't do double digit addition or subtraction, can't tell time to the nearest half hour, and can't tell you the difference between one, one half, and one quarter. I mean, so this is an absolute crisis in education. And I think people just treat it as if, well, it's education, and, you know, we're never going to do a great job with it. And we just need to kind of accept the status quo. But the status quo is going to lead to massive problems for future generations unless we fix it. In the Detroit example, how does Odyssey help fix that, that problem? Right. So what we are enabling states to do for the first time is to take that funding and then instead of sending it to the school district, they can send it directly to the parents. And then the parents are charged with figuring out what education is best for their son or daughter. This is revolutionary in education, but it is table stakes in most other fields. So the way that we fund, for example, food benefits in the U.S. 
is not through a centralized system where we're sending money directly to your local food commissary and then you go and pick it up there, right? We send the funds to parents. There's actually a lot of advancements in it recently, some interesting startups who are working on this, but they essentially can then use a debit card and they can spend it at various vendors throughout the city, throughout their town. And it's not that there is a one size fits all solution to this problem of food scarcity. And so this idea is bringing that same concept of, hey, you know, parent choice or consumer choice, customer choice is a net good that we want to encourage. And the person who's best equipped to know what is right for their son or daughter is their parent, not necessarily someone sitting in a centralized office who's figuring out, hey, what curriculum are we going to teach in first grade? And so our program enables states to send their funding directly to the parents. And then those parents are allowed to spend it on education expenses. And so that term in these policies is defined very broadly, which is really cool. So it means that you can take those funds, you can spend it on a software program online if you want to do something like a synthesis, which is like an online social learning game. You could also use it on something like a primer, or maybe you could take a class on OutSchool. People sign up for coding classes with it. In real life, people can use it to pay tutors. They can go to a local music school. They can also use it to fund their education entirely. So they can go to a private school with it. They can go to a micro school with it. And the really interesting thing, and what we're beginning to see in increasing numbers when you delve into the data for these programs, is that over time, as parents get the money, they start using it for more and more options. And so what we're seeing for the first time in education is they're taking the school day or the school district, we, which used to provide essentially just a bundle, right? And you could either take it or leave it. You had no choices. And so it would provide sports and art and math and reading and writing and lunch and tutoring. Everything was at the centralized school. And now parents have the funds and they can pick and choose. So they can take a class online and then they can bundle that with a local class at their community college. They can then hire a tutor to teach a foreign language. And all of this is combining into, for the first time, a real marketplace for education where parents can pick and choose what they think is best. And it really results in fascinating choices for the parents. So, for example, we have a mom in Idaho, which is one of the first programs that we're running, and she applied for this type of program for her son who is blind. And she received her funds and she's actually go purchased a Braille printer for her son. And so they're essentially able to print out books or other texts that they want to. And then he's able to kind of instantly read them. And so what it means, I think, if Odyssey is successful, is that alternative education and personalized education for the first time becomes mainstream. And I think that gets overused a lot in the education sector. People talk about personalize it, customize it. But really what happens currently is every parent gets faced with a difficult choice. Do I opt into the local school system and school district, or do I pay out pocket for something I really want? And now that won't be a choice anymore. It'll be a false choice for parents. They can do whatever they want with the state funds. So if they want a classical education, the state will pay for it. If they want to do project-based learning, if they want to do virtual reality. And so increasingly, I think in the future, Odyssey enables alternative education to go mainstream. And this is already, I think, a rising trend that we're seeing. So if you look back at the last couple of years, 
Obviously, the pandemic was one of the biggest factors in education. Schools were closed across the country, and parents increasingly voted with their feet and decided to leave the school system. So there's all these statistics out there, but a few just to bring you and your audience up to speed. I estimate 1.5 million students left the public school system during the pandemic. Over hundreds of thousands of them signed up for charter schools. Catholic schools increased their enrollment. Micro schools and learning pods, which were an incredibly niche sector before this, had hundreds of thousands of people who enrolled in them, hundreds and thousands of teachers who started new schools. And so what you're seeing already is that parents are opting in for customized education solutions. And really, there is policy now, which is often a lagging indicator, that's catching up and enabling parents to actually take their state funds and follow them to whatever education they want. And so where Odyssey sits is we work as partners with the state to enable them to set up these types of programs. We help administer the programs from end to end, which means we do everything from marketing and outreach to application verification, to setting up marketplace, handling payments, and then providing data to the state to ensure all the taxpayer money is spent efficiently. And we then work with the parents on making sure they get the education that they want through our platform. And then we also recruit vendors and approve them, allow them to charge parents for their services. I read this essay that I was obsessed with a couple of weeks ago, I think called Why Do We Stop Making Einsteins? And it was about the fact that all of like the geniuses through history also happen to have like tutors and govern governesses who are giving them kind of personalized one-on-one -on -one education. Then you put them in this system that is just like, I don't know, hopefully it kind of works for all of you a little bit. And then we just stop making like these historical geniuses. And so I love this idea that parents have the choice to figure out what to do for each of their kids' education, something that, you know, maybe somebody with with more funds could do. And it sounds like people are already kind of doing but that just widens the gap if you don't have kind of state funding going to families that otherwise couldn't afford to personalize their their education. Like what's the size of the opportunity that we're talking about here? How much does each family get? And I know I'm sure it'll be different state by state. And then if every state launches a program like this, like what's the total pool of money available yeah. for, <clears throat> for educating kids? Yeah, so K-12 education altogether in the U.S. is roughly $770 billion. It goes up annually, usually as each state increases their budget. In terms of these programs, you know, because the Phillies are in the World Series, we can use a baseball analogy. I'd say we're in the bottom of the first inning. So these programs and policies, which are called microgrants or education savings accounts, are very new. The very first one was passed in Arizona about eight, nine years ago. The concept for it really only came about 10 years ago in some policy papers. And so since then, we've had kind of a steady increase in the number of states passing them pre-pandemic. So there's usually one or two. The programs are usually pretty constrained. And then similar to what we saw in a lot of other sectors, during COVID, everything changed. And so all of a sudden, with parents leaving the school districts, leaving the school systems, there was a lot of pressure on politicians and policymakers to come up with new ways to help parents. And so what we saw was in 2021, some people refer to it as the year of school choice because there were over 20 programs that were passed in that year alone. So we went from typically one or two or three to nearly 20 
And then last year we saw another, I think it was seven altogether passed and we're on track, I'd say for probably another 10 or 12 this year. And so increasingly states are passing these programs. For states that have existing programs, they're expanding eligibility. And by that, I mean, when some of these programs were passed, the first iteration had a lot of qualifications. So Arizona is a good example. When they first passed their program, you could qualify if you went to a failing school, uh, which was characterized as like a school that received a D or worse by the Arizona Department of Education. If you lived on a Native American tribal reservation, if you were a military family. And so there were all these kind of very niche categories. And what they just passed in June was a universal expansion, which means it went from, I think, being eligible for probably like a quarter of the folks in Arizona and to being eligible for all of the folks. So now it's 1.1 million students are eligible. And pretty much in the space of a few weeks, the program quadrupled in size because there was so much demand for it. The system that is run by the state actually went down overnight. They couldn't process and keep up with all of the incoming applications. They need a software company to help them. Exactly, right? Yeah. So we ended up working for, for our product. We ended up launching in our first state about six weeks ago in Idaho. And so there we're helping them administer their program. The program's called the Empowering Parents Program. And to give you a sense of the scale of these programs, there are over 48,000 kids who have signed up and we've processed their application to date. We've approved approximately 27,000 and we've awarded $27 million, give or take a little bit. And so the programs are large. There's huge demand for them. And the amount of money is pretty serious. And so when you kind of look at the national landscape, each state has to pass their own version. They have to look at kind of what the criteria are. But increasingly, this is going to be, I think, a large percentage of that $770 billion is going to be transferred into these types of programs where the funding is more fungible and can go to different types of schools and different types of services. Just like going in, into the details a little bit more. So let's say you're in Arizona or any state, one of these school systems with a D or lower grade. Yeah. Say everybody chooses to opt out of that school and take the money. Does that money go from going to that school to going right into the parents' pockets? And if so, like it almost creates this competitive dynamic within government institutions, which is kind of cool. Am I thinking about that the right way? That's right. I think what you're highlighting is interesting, which is kind of like, what are the secondary effects of this, right? And so I think one of them is you're creating a competitive market in the K-12 education space where previously none existed. And to go back, when I first started working in K-12 education, I worked in the charter school sector. Charters are distinct from public. They're still considered public schools, but they're operated by private entities, usually a nonprofit. And one of the original ideas behind charters was that they would inject some form of competition. And in or states where they were allowed to grow and flourish, like New York City, Washington, D.C., Boston, there are studies done that showed that overall they had a positive effect on student achievement because for the first time, the districts were being held accountable. Because if New York City DOE was not doing a good job, then you would opt out and you would go to KIPP New York City or you go to Success Academy or you go to Zeta Charter School. 
And so there is a lot of research that where we've done this before, competitive schools generally lift all schools in that sector. And so if we're introducing competition, it means, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, as they say. And so that's the hope with this, that even for parents who aren't opting into these programs, that there will be a benefit because schools just across the board will become more competitive as they know that they have to compete and as they know that parents have options. Because at the end of the day, if they're not meeting what the parents want, parents will walk, they'll take their money and they'll go elsewhere. And therefore that school will either have to adapt or it will just continue to lose students. It also seems like it's another big unlock kind of in a similar vein where ed tech just feels like for so long, it's been this category that could have the biggest impact. Like people should be learning better when we have all of these tools at our disposal. And it's been with a few like rare exceptions, this graveyard in this place that, that venture dollars have gone to die. Now you're injecting billions and billions and billions of dollars of demand into the system. I guess actually give us your whole background because you have like the perfect founder market fit for this and it'll qualify you to talk on this topic. And then what's happened in, in EdTech up to now and what you think this does for, for EdTech? Yeah, one of the best compliments I think I got from a VC was a partner at Andreessen who, during the process when we were raising the seed round, told me as he introduced me to another partner that I had been designed in a laboratory to, to create this type of company because of my background. So I, I've been in education my entire career. I started as a teacher working in a classroom, taught in Washington, D.C., in my hometown of Philadelphia, also worked in California. And I was actually teaching for a while. And after doing that, had been recruited to open up my own school. So I moved out west to California and in the South Bay in San Jose, was in the process of opening up a charter school. And what happened was something I, I didn't anticipate, which was we were ready to launch the charter. We had recruited parents. We were serving mainly low-income Mexican-American community. And then we got sued by the teachers union. And the teachers union didn't really have any substantive claims. It was mainly procedural. It was, hey, you know, this isn't zoned for that. Or, oh, we need to do an environmental study. Or this is going to have problems with traffic that we need to mitigate. So what ended up happening was a combination of there was some litigation as well as kind of public hearings. And it really just got into a quagmire and it became increasingly clear that we were not going to be able to open up the school. So at that point, I decided I needed to go to law school in order to figure out how to open up a school in, in the country. And so I went to law school and continued studying and working on some education stuff there. The first job out of law school was at a startup called Alt School. And if you recall, it was kind of an early tech company, incredibly ambitious raised from some great funders and investors, and their mission was threefold. They wanted to develop software that would be useful for teachers and school leaders in schools in the classroom. They wanted to develop hardware. They actually had some idea of that they could actually capture the aha learning moment when it clicked for students, and then they would be able to work backwards from that and figure out what they had done well. And then the third thing was they wanted to start a microschool network. And so I worked on that third initiative. And so I was working under their general counsel. And my task was basically, hey, what would it look like if we wanted to open up a nationwide network of micro schools as quickly and as efficiently as possible? 
And so what I did was go deep into every state and top 50 cities on what that would look like, what regulations would apply, how could we fund them, did we need to get zoning variances, what were the teacher certification requirements. I remember we had the spreadsheet with, I think it was 54 different things we needed to look at before we could get to a yes or no on whether we could open up a school. And so after doing that, I essentially had a pretty robust roadmap of this is how you would open up quickly and cheaply a network of schools across the country. And what ended up happening was Alt School decided to pivot away from those three initiatives. They cut back on their hardware and they cut back on the micro schools and they decided to focus on software going forward. And so at that point, I needed to find something else to do. And so left and worked for a law firm. Did a lot of different things at the law firm, but mainly continued working on education. The highlight of those years was being able to uh, argue a Supreme Court case that was pretty pivotal for some of the work we're doing now. It's a case out of Montana called Espinoza. And the major issue was over whether or not parents had the right to take state funding and be able to send it to a private school that in this case was religious. And we ended up being able to argue and submit a brief before the Supreme Court. And we ended up winning that case, which was incredibly exciting and actually kind of set up some of the policy issues that we're now able to benefit from at Odyssey. And so after doing that, had been working on the policy side for a while, really wanted to get back into operations. So I launched in 2019, early 2020, a micro school company called Schoolhouse. Based on everything I learned at Alt School, it seemed like a, a great time to do it. A couple of months later, the world shut down because of COVID, and we suddenly had what everyone wanted, which was a, a marketplace that was able to set up at-home micro-schools with your nearby neighbors and, and uh, kids who were your children's age, along with a high-quality, like, state-certified teacher. And so we quickly grew and had I'd say found product market fit during the pandemic. I think at one point we opened up 60 schools in two months. So we were a like a school a day. We put the schools anywhere, which was kind of cool. So we had schools in like houses, garages, basements, living rooms, kitchens, uh, backyards. But then we also did some, there was one in Brooklyn. I think it might have been Carroll Gardens where a bar that had closed because of the pandemic reopened at the school, which was pretty cool. We did That them. sounds like a sitcom. Yeah, yeah exactly. Awesome. Right, right, right. And so we were very successful, quickly growing and serving a need that we had found. But increasingly, I found that the parents of families we were helping, helping were generally upper income, upper middle class who were able to essentially pay for it out pocket. And so I started really looking into, okay, well, all these policies I've worked on for over a decade, can we actually use some of those and implement them and try to serve more families, especially on the low income side? And what I found when I delved into it was the gap between what I fought for as an attorney and, and helped implement and the actual implementation was massive. And so there were policies that had been well-written, had been passed, they had all kind of the model legislation. And then when it was left up to implementation, they fumbled it. So states where tens of thousands could be enrolled and they only had a few hundred or maybe a few thousand after a few years. And the reason came down to really the software. A lot of states had originally tried to run the programs themselves manually. That was a disaster. So then they switched to either developing software themselves, which is not usually a core competency of a state government, or 
they had hired an outside vendor. And usually the outside vendors had taken something that was existing and kind of through a Frankenstein process, put something to get together and sold it to them. And so these platforms had numerous data breaches. They had issues where it would take weeks or months for the state to hear back on simple requests from the vendor. Parents would get dropped during the process or they'd be assigned to the wrong state because the vendor platform they actually hadn't modified it for any single state. So you could apply in Missouri and be approved in New Hampshire, which didn't make any sense. Uh, and so it quickly became clear that this was a huge problem and that if we were going to really fix what's wrong at the heart of education, which is that not every parent has choice over where their child goes to education. The only parents who have choice in America right now are those with the money to do it, the money to buy a house in a good school system or the money to opt out and go to a private school. And so I decided that is what I wanted to work on. And so decided to leave Schoolhouse and start my company now that's called Odyssey. And so that was a little bit over a year and a half. And literally for the first I'd say six months, all I did was talk to parents who were using the program. So I started with, there was a, a mom I knew in Arizona who was using the program. She had a couple of kids on it and she was writing the constant issues. I talked to her. She was very generous with her time. At the end of it, I said, hey, can you introduce me to two more parents? And then just from there, I must have ended up talking to over 150 parents just in that single state. Then I talked to vendors. So I talked to people who ran micro schools or private schools who are on these programs. I talked to the state administrators, people in departments of education, departments of revenue, state boards of education, who were actually tasked with carrying it out, asking, you know, what works, what doesn't, what's your experience like? And at the end of six months, I had a pretty clear roadmap of what we needed to build. And so at that point, I wrote just a memo. I'm not one for decks because of my background as an attorney. So I just wrote a, a memo. I think it was eight pages kind of laying out everything I had learned up until that point and the vision for the company and was able to, to raise kind of a, a small round off of that. And then that gave me the momentum to hire a team and start building it. And then the rest is what you see now, which is we have a working platform that handles everything from marketing and outreach to applications for parents, applications for vendors, um, allowing them access into a marketplace where they can invoice, make payments, and all of it is tracked and accessible to the state through a portal where they can look at all the data. And so we've launched in one state, Idaho, where we're in the process of giving out tens of millions of dollars to parents there who qualify. And we will be in probably two more states in the next two to three months that we're talking to. And then 2023 and beyond, We'll be going after all the states in the country to help them run these types of programs. And now you have the capital to go out and do that. You just announced the day before we're recording this, so we're recording on Thursday. You announced on Wednesday that Catherine Boyle at A16Z and the American Dynamism Practice led your round. Tell us about the round, about Catherine. Like when when you first told me this was potentially happening, it just makes so much sense because education is upstream of everything else that's important in the country. So would love to hear how that came together and what you plan on doing with the money. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we raised $4.75 billion from Catherine Boyle and a few other investors. It's through their American dynamism practice, which is a practice that's focused on solving really tough, hard problems in the U.S. Education is certainly one of those. 
you know, healthcare is one, construction, national defense. And so I felt like it was kind of a perfect match between what our vision was as a company and what they're looking for in terms of their portfolio companies in that fund. And so I met some of the folks at Andreessen just over the years and have been talking to them about this new idea. And once Catherine joined, because she joined close to a year ago, one of the partners at Andreessen, who I know, and introduced me to Catherine, we had some good calls. The first were very, I'd say, high up talking about like, hey, what is going on in education? What do I see? What does she see? We talked about, you know, interesting companies that were in there. We only talked about my company at the end for maybe a couple of minutes. And then we just kind of kept having conversations and they were really worthwhile and useful. And at one point she, you know, said, Hey, like, well, if you're looking to really expand your company and you want the capital to do it, like, we'd love to have that conversation. So we put together a round and it closed actually while my wife was pregnant and, and giving birth. I think we signed like the papers maybe a week after my first daughter was born, which was kind of crazy, but having them on our side has been incredibly helpful. They're great partners to be able to think through a lot of the unique issues that come up when you're competing in a highly regulated industry like education, right? And you're talking not about just selling to customers directly, but you're talking about, hey, how do we interact and work as good partners with state governments? What does that look like? What should the communication be like? How do we approach it? How do we handle procurement? And so being able to have them as partners and supporters in our corner, people who have more experience with those issues has been fantastic and just really helpful. And what are you going to do with all that, all that end recent money? Yeah. So, so we're incredibly excited because we've been able to prove out the core thesis that there's demand for these, that states need an outside partner like us to come in and run it. And so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to continue to develop the product. There's lots of features that states are asking for that we're going to add, that parents want, that, that vendors want. We think we can make this an incredibly easy and intuitive process for everyone involved. And, and just one example of that is today we've been able to reduce the amount of time it takes parents to sign up and get approved from months or weeks in some program to a few minutes because of our software and the way that we are able to verify instantly using state databases. So we collect kind of bare minimum of data and we're able to run it against something like a state tax database and then instantly verify the parents. And so that's the type of improvements that we want to build throughout the process because there's lots of kind of bottlenecks that happen during it. And so we're going to use the capital to scale to more states and hire more developers. So plug for that. Like if you are a software engineer and developer, and you want to work on something that will have a massive impact on education and on the country, get out our careers page or reach out to me directly. Happy to talk to you. We're hiring across lots of positions and could definitely use some more technical talent. For sure. I mean, I, I think there's a couple of different pieces of that. One, I think the good thing that's going to come of this downturn is that a lot of people are going to leave cushy jobs and maybe some bloated companies, really, really talented people. And then like go out into, you know, seed stage and make a real, real impact. I also think the companies that have a mission like Odyssey's 
and you tell me because you're actually doing the recruiting here, but like it seems like such an easier time recruiting when it's like, hey, you can do what you do great, build software. We're backed by great investors. And oh, by the way, you're going to fix education in America if we do this right. What's that recruiting process like? Yeah. You know, I think it's always challenging when you're at an early stage company having to compete with other later stage companies or public companies. And so I think one of the few things that you can have as an advantage, in my mind, as an early stage company are, are two things. One is you can guarantee impact in a way that no one else could at a later stage company. When we were 10 people and hiring our 11th, right, we're increasing headcount by 10%. And that new person was a huge addition and was able to influence culture and have an impact in their work in a way that the 100th or 10,000th person is not going to have at a larger company. And then the second one, I think, is what you hit on, which is our mission. I think a lot of people have been in technology for a while and working at companies that, quote, unquote, you know, will change the world through better, you know, CRMs or, or better expense management or something like that. And those companies are great. But I think increasingly what I'm seeing is that people want to work on something that's meaningful. And I think especially a lot of a lot of folks, whether they're technical or not, like when they have kids really start confronting the issue of, oh, like, what are we going to do for, you know, our son or daughter? Like when they turn five, are they, are we going to go to a private school? Are we going to homeschool them? And so I, I'd say we've actually been like quite successful being able to go after people have had careers at like well thought of startups or even larger public companies because they really want to work on something that's meaningful. And then also a lot of people who literally are trying to solve their own problem, which is they've just had a son or daughter and they realize that, oh, I actually like don't love what's out there and what school they're going to attend. And so I want to work on that and I want to fix that. And so that's actually been, I'd say, incredibly compelling pitch that we can make to people to recruit them. And now you're solving your own problem, which wasn't the case when you started the company. But congratulations, you mentioned that your your daughter was born kind of in the middle of the deal process. I remember that it seemed like stressful, but amazing time. Yeah. As someone who's thought more about this space than almost anybody else and understanding that these are very personal and child-dependent, family-dependent decisions, how do you think about educating your daughter? I would say the first realization I had is that it's completely different being on the side of being a parent versus having been a practitioner, worked on policy, worked as an attorney fighting for students' rights. There's something about education because it touches on so many important things, right? It touches on culture. It touches on values. It touches on your child's future career, their well-being that it's one of the most personal and intimate decisions that people make. And I think often when people are choosing a school, they're essentially voting with, hey, what it is, what that we value as a family? What is it that we value as, 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 as parents? And so I would say that one, it's hard to make those decisions, right? It's hard to figure out what is high quality. I mean, so my daughter is, you know, she's less than one years old. So we're not looking at schools now, but in terms of trying to figure out, okay, like, you know, should we be buying these 
Montessori play kits over here that are supposed to encourage creative thinking? Or should we be you know, buying these Dr. Seuss books? Should we be sending her to like language classes? When do we do swim lessons? It's, it's very overwhelming. And so I think one thing it's really reinforced for me is that when you're designing experiences or products for parents, you need to really understand kind of the mindset of them, which is that it's really tough to make these decisions. They're often doing them on the fly. They're equipped with incomplete information. And so you really need to be able to help them as much as possible and relieve the burden. And so one of the things that actually really kind of pissed me off when I first started the company was I would talk to people at the state level who would describe the process of verifying parents and kids. And they would talk about, you know, requiring tax returns or requiring them to upload report cards or all of these things that were onerous. And it resulted in the process taking months to complete. And so, you know, from my point of view, both as a parent and as the founder of a company that's supposed to make parents' lives easier, like that was just a terrible idea and like a terrible burden to put on parents. And so when we are designing something for parents, we do the opposite, which is what are the minimum amount of steps that we can ask parents to take in order to verify them? And so we've gotten that down to under 10, such that the process now takes five minutes for the state that we're operating in, whereas before it would take months. And I think that's just something that I've taken away because I've seen it in my own life, just that you need to constantly think about the end user when you're designing for parents and really make sure that you're building for them. Because otherwise, what ends up happening is you're building something that is not user-friendly and is not going to have a great uptake rate among your target, which is parents. In one sense, you're in this like really beautiful, I don't want to say easy because nothing is, but like easy spot where the states have pools of money and your job is to like mm -hmm. help people get that money. It's like something that everybody wants is to get yeah. free money. And so like on that side, you're in a great spot. I can also see being in the middle there, just given what you've talked about on both sides of the issue there, like to be a real hard product challenge, right? Like how you do something that's as simple as humanly possible for the parents on the one side but then hits all the state's requirements on the other side or is a consumer product on one side or, and is a kind of enterprise product on the other side for the states who aren't used to using great software. And it feels like there's two very different constituencies that you have to serve with your product. How do you think about building software given that? Yeah, so I, I would say we actually think about it as three different personas so the first is parents, and I, I think we've spent a lot of time talking about that. The other two would be the state. So it depends in which state we're working with, but typically it's someone at a state agency or a state board. Usually not typically the leader of that, it, it's someone underneath them. And so we need to make sure that any tools that we're building for parents and then vendors, which are the other persona, we're able to give insight for those state officials, because they want to be able to review it. They want to be able to see what's happening in the platform, how many parents are applying, how many are getting approved, what vendors are there, where the transactions are going, how many there are, what's the total dollar amount that's being moved. And so, yeah, we 
essentially are building for three separate use cases. And then the third would be the vendors. So someone like an online class company, right, who's offering them and, and wants to be able to have parents use the government funding on that. And so what I would say that we've done is um, we've prioritized. Um, so the number one user persona that we build for is the parent. And that's why I've spent so much time talking about it. It's because when we looked at user experiences to date, that was where the most bottlenecks were. And it was where the program was essentially being strangled early on. And by, by that, I mean, these programs have been built for thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. And the actual uptake in the intended communities was very low. And partly that was because they had not been designed with the idea of, oh, how can we make this as easy as possible for parents? But essentially what they had done was they had gotten what the requirements of the government were. And then they just, you know, essentially like built by numbers and didn't really care at all about what that parent experience was. So the way that we think about it is we essentially have a priority of personas. And when we're making decisions, we generally try to make them such that it will make parents' lives easier. We can't do that all the time. You know, for example, the state is always rightly concerned about fraud. And so we are often judged on whether or not we're accurately able to verify applicants for the program. And so there are kind of minimum standards that we need to put in place to make sure that, hey, so-and-so is a state resident and they do have kids who are in K through 12, right? Which means that there are a minimum number of kind of processes we need to go through with the parents to do that. But overall, I would say the way that we do it, and I think this is similar for a lot of marketplaces, is you essentially just have to decide who you think your end user is. I think a lot of people in government tech say the state or the federal government, which is completely understandable, and I know why they do it. But I'd say we're different in that we've decided that it's the parents. And so majority of our efforts are designed to make it easier for them to sign up and use the program. It seems that the next confusing piece for the parents after applying and getting the money is figuring out which vendors to work with. On one hand, you want to be, I would imagine for now, unopinionated there. But over time, like that does feel like a really big pain point. Someone gives you thousands of dollars and says like, all right, now you go figure out like what to do best for your kids. How do you think about Odyssey's role in that piece of the decision over time? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's twofold. We don't want to have our hands on the scales and say, hey, this school is the premier school and everyone should attend or this service is the best one and people should sign up for it. I think what we want to do, though, is call balls and strikes. And so the way that we think about doing that is as we are able to roll out more of these programs and as we're able to move more money through the system, we can provide more data and information to the parents on what services what schools, what products parents are using and what their experience was like with that. In the very near future, we are planning to be able to allow parents to essentially see what people's experience was like. And so we're going to be introducing a rating system within it. There's a lot of issues that come with kind of being able to rate quality as if you look at things like Yelp or other directories like that. So we have to be careful about it. But I think it's a huge opportunity for us because because of a number of reasons. One is we'll have verified parents, right? So it's not like we'll have kind of spoof reviews or people who are able to spam it. Everyone who's in the system and able to review and conduct a purchase will have gone through a pretty rigorous KYC process. So we'll know that they are who they say they are. 
Number two, we'll be able to actually link that individual person to the transactions for that goods or services. So there won't be anyone who's rating or reviewing things for reasons other than the actual experience that they had with the product. And then three, really what we hope to be able to do is we, we want to encourage and we see ourselves as really a company that can seed hopefully great education innovations by helping lots of other education entrepreneurs out there. So if you have a great product and you're on Odyssey and parents start buying it and they have a great experience, the data is going to reflect that, right? So you'll get five stars or two thumbs up, whatever rating system it is that we implement. And increasingly that will be able to be used by parents. And I think that's something that's really powerful because in my experience as a parent and working with parents, I think a lot of information is siloed. And by that, I mean, we have a parent text group and we exchange ideas on like local classes or things to do or schools to enroll in or when the application period is. And all of that is essentially limited to our text group. And if you zoom out, that's true across the country. People have social media groups. So there's lots of Facebook groups with just parents in where they're sharing ideas. And what we really want to do is we want to unlock that knowledge and we want to have parents share that. And so we're going to be rolling out essentially a, a feature that allows parents to do that. And hopefully that helps people actually find high quality options and use them. It's also cool. It, it reminds me, and it's I know not a perfect analogy, but of you know Stripe committing whatever it was, a billion dollars to pre-purchase agreements on the climate side to say like, hey, if you build this technology, here's our PO in the future. We have demand for this thing. I would imagine, you know, one online, if parents are asking for a certain thing, like you can guarantee startups that there will be money yeah. there for it if they do a good job. Locally as well, I'm sure if, if there are districts with terrible school systems that either local teachers could set up micro schools or someone like a primer could come in and it shows you where there are holes in the market that some somebody who wants to go fix them can go solve. So that piece I think is really, really cool too. Do you think about exposing those holes to potential ed tech entrepreneurs? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think one interesting thing that we're seeing is that, you know, marketplaces aren't perfect. And I think anyone who's built one can tell you that. And so as we expand to more states, what we are seeing is that certain states have more types of vendors than others. Some of that is just education and outreach, and we can close those gaps. But in other places, there are just not enough high quality tutors. And so I'll give some examples. I mean, in Idaho, it's a very rural state. Obviously, Boise and the surrounding area is urban. It's urban, but there's a lot of people who live in rural areas. Farming communities are hours away from major cities. And so in a place like that, it's incumbent upon us to allow as many virtual options, so software, online tutors as possible, right? Because that's going to be really helpful for the citizens of that state. In other places, right, there might be more of a need for in-person. And so we can also encourage that in those states. And so part of that is we take a very state-based approach with our implementation. In Idaho, for example, we have signed up several hundred local vendors in addition to dozens of national vendors. So these are local music schools, local teachers who are retired and want to make some money on the side. People who are running, we actually have like an after-school drone program for people who are interested in like an agricultural cool. career to learn how to use drones in agriculture. So things like that, I think, are really interesting. And the other thing, hopefully, is that we're able to essentially be a platform for education entrepreneurs to launch in one state, see some initial success, and then continue to expand. Because 
And so one of the biggest discrepancies you see with people who haven't sold in education technology markets before is that the U.S. is talked about as a single market for K-12 education. It's really 50 separate markets because of the way that we fund education, which is primarily local and state, not federal. Uh, federal dollars usually only make up about 7% of the overall uh, per pupil funding. And so what that means is that if you know how to sell in New York to the state or to school systems, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to sell in Connecticut or California or Texas or Florida. And so one of the things that we have a lot of conversations with is around vendors and how we can make it as easy as possible for someone to set up in one state with us and then gain access to all the other states. We see ourselves essentially as a platform and we want to allow great education companies and services to launch on it and be able to expand and grow using these, these new policies and funds. All right. So with the last question here, I'm going to ask you to do something like almost impossible, which is just predict the state of K-12 education in like a quarter century or something, given that Odyssey exists and new competitive dynamics have entered the market. Like, what do you think a kid born in 25 years educational experience will look like? Yeah, I think it will be vastly different because alternative education will be much more mainstream. And so I think you'll see massive, and we've seen this to date, massive increases in homeschooling, increases in private schools. Those are Montessori or religious or Waldorf or project-based learning. I think you'll see more online schools. And then I think micro schools and learning pods. You'll have that difference and you'll have more and more people enrolled in each of those sectors. But I also think what will be very cool is that people are mixing and matching, right? So people are going to maybe their local private school for two days a week and then they're homeschooling the rest of the time. Or they're combining some type of online private school like Asura with some type of learning pod company like a Kaipod. And so they're getting some virtual and in-person or they're taking online classes and kind of advanced STEM subjects because that's what their interest is. And then they pair that with local art classes at a Christian private school. And I think that will lead to a much better experience for the average family and student because they'll be able to get exactly what it is that they want. And so what we hope to enable is that future where parents can come to us, they can sign up, instantly gain access to their funding that we're able to move from the government, and then they can take that and they can spend it at whatever education experience they want. And that's really what I want to build. And I think we're in the very early stages of that, but increasingly more states will pass policies that enable this. I think increasingly more and more parents are going to opt into this. I think the future is bright for education entrepreneurs building in K through 12 because they'll be able to access these funds as they serve parents well. Joe, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate getting to come on this odyssey. I'm sorry. <laughs> With you. No, but I mean, honestly, just so, so pumped that, that you've added up here and building this. I do think it's incredibly important. If you are somebody who's interested in going to work for an early stage startup that's doing something really important, I can attest to how great it is to spend time and, and work with Joe. So go do that with odyssey.com. Go check out the jobs. But this is awesome. I can't wait to access those sweet, sweet New York dollars when Dev and Maya <laughs> are, are hitting that age. And, and thank you for, for doing this and for taking the time. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me back in.